0: Two weeks ago, we were on the phone with a company that wanted to buy us, and they offered us $100 million for the business, and I said, no. That's a powerful thing to be able to say, and I think you said your audience is entrepreneurs, so I'm sure many, if not all of them, hope to work to get in a position where they'd be able to say something like that. But I wanted to start with that little simple fact and maybe kind of reinforce why you should pay attention to this little story. If you have any of those in your town and you're in the technology business, I'd urge you to seek them out. They helped me raise a million dollars like within a few days. It was really easy. I was a roofer with a high school degree in Cincinnati, and I didn't fit the mold. Why not me? Why not us? Why not our family? And then I just was determined to make it happen. If you're a budding entrepreneur out there, take my advice. That's probably the most important thing you can do is. I said, fuck you guys. (laughs) That's what I said. So let me tell you what happened next. I have believed my entire life that tomorrow can and will be better than today. My nature is not to look back, so a lot of that stuff is in a closet in the back of my mind that never gets open. So you opened it, but that's okay. It's all good. I hope somebody listens to this and is inspired by it and helps you on your journey to success. That's what I hope. So my name's Philip Ogilvy. I'm the founder, co-founder really, of Stack Construction Technologies. I'm based in Cincinnati, Ohio. My wife and I have a place in Palm Coast, Florida on the West Coast, about halfway between Daytona and Jacksonville. And so we are increasingly spending more and more time down there, about six or seven months a year right now. So we love it in Florida. But my business here is in Cincinnati and my grandkids are up here and my kids. And so we still have a place up here and spend a fair amount of time. I'm currently in the office in Cincinnati. We have about 120 employees so far, and we're trying to hire another 100 over the next 10 to 12 months. We just acquired a small company in Montreal, and they brought with them about 35 employees. So we're about 110 or 12. We're hiring literally daily, so I'm not sure the exact number, but that's about the size of the business this very minute.
1: And how much did you do in revenue last year?
0: you know, we measure this business. This is a software as a service recurring revenue business. So we're creating a very valuable business. Investors today, if you look at the price of software as a service companies, they tend to trade for a multiple of revenue as opposed to a multiple of EBITDA, as long as they're fast growing businesses. So, you know, we're on track right now to do about 13 million in recurring revenue, but the business is currently growing at between 50 and 60% year over year. So we're in a really good spot and it's a fun place to be. It's just called Stacked? Stacked, S-T-A-C-K, just like a stack of bricks. We're in the construction technology business. We make estimating software for building contractors. It's an easy way to think of it.
1: Okay. Well, yeah, you did make it easy. Thank you. Because I was wondering how complicated it would be to explain. So building contractors, they just buy your software and use it online, and then you help them estimate quicker and faster so they can make more money?
0: Yeah. So we're the first solution in the cloud. So it's a cloud-based solution they basically, you know, today blueprints, it's not like it was 20 years ago. When you hear the rest of my story, we'll talk about the old days. But today, you know, construction, commercial construction primarily and multifamily construction, that's our slice of the world, commercial and multifamily mostly. But the work's done with blueprints. And so today they're electronic, right? They're PDFs or TIFF files typically. Some cases they're CAD files, but regardless, it's a digital world. And so we created the first cloud-based solution where people can literally upload their blueprints uh, into our application. We make the documents keyword searchable and hyperlink details and do lots of things to make that much more easy to work with on their computer or on their mobile device. And we allow you to measure and calculate quantities of materials and labor and create a proposal that you can share with your customers. And now with the acquisition of Smart Use, we've got a mobile application that becomes part of our platform they can take into the field and, you know, review what they estimated and, you know, collaborate with others on the project. So we call it a pre-construction platform is the way to think of it, too. So what did people end up doing before this? To the extent that they had software, it was desktop based. And there's really a bit of a transition underway in the industry and there has been for quite some time. I mean, literally 20 years ago, there were no PDF blueprints 25 years ago. Everybody was still working from paper. And so the software they needed was a little bit different, worked with digitizers and things like that. But again, most folks, you know, in those days did it by hand, right? You'd print out a full-size blueprint. You use a scale ruler that's designed to measure the, you know, based on a certain scale and you would do your calculations manually. And it's striking to me in 2020 21. how often we still convert folks who were doing it the old-fashioned way i mean there's still a lot of those folks out there but to the extent you had software you had an old desktop-based product that was probably written 25 years ago and installed off of a cd-rom and you know was not available except on the one pc that you had it locked to so we're creating a whole new world really with new capabilities new abilities to communicate with others on the project and really additional tools to help you do everything faster One of the things that I've done recently, back uh, just prior to COVID, I was invited by Steve Shabbat, who's our local congressman here in Southwest Ohio, to come to Washington, D.C. and speak to a House subcommittee on the impact of construction on technology. And it was really a privilege to be able to do it, quite an experience. There's a YouTube video of it out there somewhere of me speaking. The video doesn't really show me being as nervous as I really truly was inside, which is good. I learned in doing research for that presentation some really disturbing facts, and that is in the world of construction, if you start a brand new trade contracting business today, you only have a 35% chance of still being in business in five years. Construction has the highest single failure rate of all industries, and a lot of that is driven by a failure to adopt technology, and so the industry moves very slowly as it relates to technology, and so we tend to have a big impact, a big positive impact when we get people to fully adopt our product. You know, I was just telling somebody this morning that the biggest challenge we have is overcoming your status quo. So getting you to change your behavior. But once you do, we can have a big impact on your construction business. And that's really the mission that I'm on is to help folks in the industry to find success.
1: Well, I guess you won't have to worry about new construction anytime soon if the government's going to let everyone just stay for free in their housing, huh?
0: I think our government's been taken over by communists. I'm sorry if that offends anyone, but it's a scary world we live in. I'm optimistic that someday there'll be a resolution to the situation we find ourselves in, but it's not like anything I've ever seen in my life. Yeah.
1: I'm not worried about offending people, so don't worry. It's just you and me (laughs) on here.
0: (laughs) That's good to hear.
1: You know, it is ridiculous that, okay, how long can we go without actually paying our rent? It sucks when people are unemployed and whatnot, but They forget. I mean, what do you think is going to happen to the cost of housing? You know, the people are going to stop building multifamily and any housing if people aren't going to pay them, right?
0: I saw a note this morning. Somebody posted on a website that I was following, and they said, "You know, how is it that people made so much from unemployment that they didn't have to go to work, yet they can't pay their rent?"
1: (laughs) Good call. Yeah, I definitely agree. I forget. Yeah, a lot of them are making more money than they ever had, and then they are not paying rent.
0: It's just an unbelievable situation, and I'm optimistic it'll be somehow corrected, but it's just uh, scary to me where we are today.
1: Well, it's good that, you know, you also work in commercial. So at least you're kind of have that as well. But again, I wonder what even with office buildings and whatnot, I mean, obviously, with your technology, it's going to help in the future, no matter what, but I feel like a lot of office buildings, too, that I don't know if there's going to be a lot of new development in that as well, if more people are going to end up working from home, just because people, you know, those companies need to get money back from letting their leases run dry, just so they can, you know, earn some money back again from the pandemic.
0: You know, the good news for us is as a business, I mean, we actually, our growth accelerated during COVID. I mentioned to you earlier, you know, we tend to, if we have competition, it's old-fashioned desktop software. And, you know, in 2019, people would say to us, you know, I've got this 25-year-old program on my computer that allows me to measure PDFs. I'm okay. I don't need anything. And then, you know, once people realized, holy cow, I need to really work remote and have access to my information other than sitting at my desk in my office on my PC you know, really drove demand for us. All in all, we're in an enormous industry. There'll be waves of impact over what the government's doing. And, you know, I do think that the industry's big enough and there's continues to be a lot of tailwind in terms of people adopting technology to help grow their business. So I've lived this long. I've lived through a lot we started my first business and uh, was trying to raise money when the planes hit the towers in New York city. And so I got a lot of experience sort of being resilient and living through things. And I am confident we'll get to the other side of this as well, but we're in a good space given the size of the market and the, and the fact that people really, really do need technology to succeed today.
1: The only reason I wanted to bring that up is because I feel like you could talk about that versus a lot of guests that I have on aren't in the construction field. Like I could see how hopefully it doesn't affect your company too much because it, I mean, like you said, you even went up in revenue with COVID because people have to start cutting costs on certain things and looking at what new technology is out there. So no matter what, it sounds like your platform's still going to save them money. But again, that's the only reason I brought that up is like talking to someone who's been in the construction field or kind of understands that perspective of like, OK, if people don't eventually pay rent or, you know, if these office buildings and start going vacant, it's like there's going to be less construction overall. And that's the only reason I brought that up. Yeah, I
0: don't know. That's fair. And I and I, you know, it's a conversation we have and nobody, none of us have a crystal ball. Neither you nor I nor any of our listeners have a crystal ball. Right. But at the end of the day. Again, the market is huge. I think some of this will pass. We're seeing a little bit of it, you know, some companies that said, Oh, we're never going back to work and well now some people are coming back to work. I mean, there's a lot of advantages in just being face to face with another human being. So everybody's not always gonna work from home. I still don't believe that's the future.
1: So with Stack, I mean, specifically, like how do you actually end up saving these people money? I know you said it's in the cloud, but I'm trying to understand that perspective as well.
0: Yeah, you know, a number of areas of savings, not the least of which is the mechanism that significantly can help them grow their revenue. And we've got lots of testimonials from folks. One of my favorite stories, and really the benefits this gentleman received was candidly from moving from the old fashioned manual processes, right, with a piece of paper and a scale ruler to digital technology. But in a market where there's many, many opportunities to bid and there still are candidly, even despite all that's going on in the news and the, and the COVID and everything. I mean, construction, especially commercial has a long tail is the way we like to think of it. So even a massive downturn won't necessarily be felt in commercial construction for a couple of years. We saw that in 2008. But at the end of the day, a great story that kind of proves the one of the value components here for our customers. So one of my sales guys, Luke Holden has been with me almost since the beginning here with Stack and. Luke and I were together at the World of Concrete. We we have a big booth every year out in Las Vegas at the World of Concrete trade show in February generally. And this was just before COVID. So early 2020, we were still at the World of Concrete right before they shut the world down. And Luke had a guy approach him and said, Hey Luke, uh, I don't know if you remember me. My name is, you know, so and so and I'm from whatever the name the company was. And you sold me stack back, you know, three years ago at the World of Concrete. And so I wanted to seek you out. I'm glad to see you here. You know, thanks for everything you did for me. And he said, By the way, Luke, I had a story I wanted to share with you. He said When I first came to Las Vegas three years ago, looking for software, I was a $600,000 concrete contractor. And he said, three years after buying Stack, and he said, I give credit greatly to Stack for changing the way we do business. This past year, 2019, I did $6.2 million in revenue. And so we can definitely have a big impact on their top line. And of course, he added that he was more accurate as well, which helped him retain more of the money that he earned. But Yeah, we tend to impact the top line first in these companies and really make their processes more efficient, help them get access to more work and so on. These days,
1: small business owners are busier than ever. And spending time searching for the right candidates can feel like you're just taking time away from growing your business. That's why LinkedIn Jobs made it easier to find the people you want to talk to faster and for free. And from my personal experience... You can't find a qualified candidate faster than you can on LinkedIn jobs, create a free job post in minutes on LinkedIn jobs to reach your network and beyond to the world's largest professional network of over 770 million people focus on candidates with just the right skills and experience and use screening questions to get your role in front of only the most qualified. Then use the simple tools on LinkedIn jobs to quickly filter and prioritize who you'd like to interview and hire. It's why businesses rate LinkedIn Jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus leading competitors. LinkedIn Jobs helps you find the candidates you want to talk to faster. Did you know every week, nearly 40 million job seekers visit LinkedIn? Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash millionaire. That's linkedin.com slash millionaire to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. When it comes to your next business read, you do have options. You could pick up that trendy new buzzwordy business book, or you could learn the timeless, buzzword free lessons of a straightforward modern classic. I'm talking about Good Profit by Charles Koch, a CEO with a real world track record of decade upon decade of actual exponential business growth. Want the lessons from someone who's actually done it? Start by visiting goodprofitbook.com. That's goodprofitbook.com. Yeah, but for that guy, because I like that example, can you tell me like what he was using or what you thought he was using before and then by using Stack, how it helped him grow that amount?
0: Yeah, sure. So he was typical and still today in 2021, late 2021, 40% of the new customers for Stack are coming off of nothing at all. And you'd think those are tiny companies and they're not always there. Sometimes they're large companies as well. But when I say that, you know, they probably today, if they're, you know, if they're doing much business, they have a plotter in their office. We used to call them plotters. Now they're really like just large format printers, but they tend to, you know, print out their own blueprints in their office and they'll take a scale ruler just like dad did. And, you know, they'll sit down and start calculating quantities and doing it manually versus doing it digitally. And now today in the cloud where they can do it from anywhere is really transformative for companies. So folks see a big benefit when they come off of the desktop software, the old-fashioned desktop software that they might have used in the past because they can now collaborate and work with others. And we have a bunch of collaboration tools that make it really easy to work with digital files and navigate through a big set. But it can have a big impact. This is obviously an extreme example, but we have lots of testimonials of folks that saw their top line rise dramatically after adopting Stack.
1: Yeah, but that construction guy who did the concrete, so he was probably using desktop software, right?
0: I think in his case, he was using nothing at all. So he was coming from paper. Okay. Yeah, he was coming from paper. <laughs> right. So, you know, he could immediately do many multiples, more takeoffs and estimates for new project opportunities than he could do by hand just based on the technology.
1: Well then it makes sense why he'd able to, if you're going from hand to even desktop software I think that that's a huge dramatic jump but like this desktop software can you give me some names or examples cuz maybe there's construction people listening right now that are using those softwares you know they can hear what previous customers use and they actually use you today so
0: Yeah sure 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 we're talking about names like Plan Swift is one of the old, you know, 25 or 30 year old software programs. On screen takeoff was probably the most popular back in the day. There's a product called Bluebeam owned by a German company that does some limited measuring and things like that. But those are some of the legacy desktop products that are in the market that sort of still exist today. You know, they're not seeing any new feature development. You can't really do much with an old desktop product that was written, you know, that many decades ago. And so. For the most part, they're still being supported, but not really improved upon. And making the transition to the cloud where it's now on your phone, mobile device, or you can work from anywhere with other people on the team is really transformative as well.
1: Okay. Well, that does make sense because I wanted you to name them just so I could Google them real quick. And usually you can just tell by going to someone's website or looking at their logo, you can tell it's kind of, it has not been worked on for a while, like you're saying, versus your software. I mean, not that I can see it, but it seems like your website's much more sophisticated and being able to understand that. So again, being on the cloud too, is it just like instead of the guy who was the main contractor doing it on his desktop, he can have a virtual assistant do it or something like that. I mean, again, I'm trying to see what the other value is for anyone who's listening.
0: Yeah. And you'd really have to have experience working with blueprints to appreciate some of the nuances, right? But The first thing we do is we scrape all the text off of the blueprints. So for example, if you've got a 450 page set of blueprints for a new, you know, a new office building, just to give you an example, 450 pages is a challenge to navigate on a PDF, right? You're scrolling around. One of the things that we do is we hyperlink the details. So. If you've got a reference on a floor plan that you're looking at and there's a reference to a detail, how's a wall built, you'll see a little indicator that identifies this is exploded, the view of this is exploded in a detail on this particular page. And so we automatically recognize that. We use artificial intelligence to an extent, and we recognize that that is a detail symbol. We recognize it's referencing another page on the drawings. And we literally turn that into a hyperlink that you can click on and opens in a new window You'd really have to be into the app to fully benefit from how it works, but just navigating through a big complicated set of drawings is now much, much simpler and easier and more powerful just based on some of the simple tools. We give you the ability to overlay the drawings, multiple drawings, for example. So you could overlay, we sort of make them different levels of transparency. So you can overlay multiple levels of a floor plan in a single building, and you can see where the HVAC risers come through or the plumbing passes from floor to floor. So there's just tons of benefits that we've been able to add value around having the data in the cloud and using modern technology and making the navigation super simple.
1: Okay. No, that, I think that you even saying that I could understand, like, even if things are quote unquote digital and in a 450 page PDF, if you're a construction guy, being able to understand that. And I guess I'm even looking at a YouTube video that y'all have is you can click on certain sections and it might show all the HVAC on a certain floor, right? Where it's a certain color. And so it's easier to overlay that and then take it off, I guess, versus maybe just in a PDF. You're looking at all black and white usually in a PDF too. It seems like versus color code and whatnot to try to help people figure out quicker on exactly.
0: No, 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 that's exactly right. That's exactly right.
1: Okay, so you hire me first, being a sales guy, or what? Yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. You should certainly apply. We're looking. We are looking for sure. We're looking for sure.
1: Well, yeah, I appreciate you giving us, you know, an overview. I think we all kind of understand that. So why don't we jump into your story on how you actually got started with this business, or even before that?
0: You know, I've been in the business a long time. One of the reasons that you should pay attention, I think, I'll just start with this little factoid and then we'll back into the very beginning of the story. Two weeks ago, we were on the phone with a company that wanted to buy us and they offered us $100 million for the business. And I said, no, that's a powerful thing to be able to say. And I think you said your audience is entrepreneurs. So I'm sure many, if not all of them, hope to work to get to in a position where they'd be able to say something like that. But I wanted to start with that little simple fact and maybe kind of reinforce why you should pay attention to this little story. I didn't go to college. My parents, uh, I remember when I graduated from high school, I'm getting close to graduation time. My parents set me down. They said, Philip, we've saved a grand total of $2,500 for your college fund, or your father has an opportunity at the Sheet Metal Workers Union, they're hiring, can't get enough help, they're trying to build an engine plant here in Moraine, Ohio, outside of Dayton, they need a lot of Sheet Metal Workers, and you can uh, start you know, very soon, and you'll make $14 an hour, and this was in 1978, and so I processed everything I just learned, and in about 30 seconds, I said, where do I go to sign up for the Sheet Metal Workers Union, <laughs> right? So that was how I started my career. I had you know, no skills or training in virtually anything beyond my high school education. And so I started to work in the sheet metal trade. Hard work, long days, hot and cold, working outside. But I enjoyed it. You know, I was a young guy. I was in shape. I was learning a skill, learning a trade and certainly making more money than anybody else that I knew at the time that was my age. And so, life was good for a couple of years until we got into the early 80s and the economy collapsed and Jimmy Carter was in the White House and interest rates were 15 and 16% and inflation spiked to the point where the economy ground down to a halt. Things looked bleak. I remember being laid off from my construction job. I had a mortgage and I had two kids and my wife at the time of course and I went over to Xenia, Ohio, which is where I needed to go to collect my first unemployment check. And in those days, you had to go back and sign up every two weeks and tell them you were looking for work and go through this process. And driving back from my first sign up of unemployment, I was somewhat humiliated because that's not my personality. And I didn't understand how I couldn't just do something and work and support my family. So I thought, this is the last time I'm going to do this. So I, uh, <laughs> I bought a book on how to put a roof on your house. And I read that book. And then I thought, I can do that. And people need roofs. Even in economic times of downturn, people need roofs. So I went down to the Yellow Pages office. The Yellow Pages was located at that time in Kettering, Ohio. That was the Google of its day. Probably if you go to your grandparents' house today, somewhere and tucked away in a drawer, they've probably got a big three or four inch thick book that would have been the Yellow Pages from back in the day. So basically it had every phone number for every human being and every business in the region. And you could advertise in what they call the Yellow Pages, which is where business was done. And so in those days, if I needed a roof, I'd pick up the Yellow Pages and I'd turn to roofing and there's a whole category full of local roofers. And so What I did is I signed up for an ad in the Yellow Pages, and I remember it cost about $600 a month. And I signed the paperwork and then came home and told my then wife, and she was not at all happy. And understandably so, because we didn't probably have more than $600 in the bank at the time. But I thought, I'm going to work my way through this. I'm not going to sit and take somebody else's money and hurt my self-esteem and my pride, and I wasn't going to do it. So you know, my phone started to ring. You spend $600 a month on a big fat Yellow Pages ad, your phone's going to ring, at least in the early 80s. That's the way the world worked. And my phone started to ring. I started to pick up some jobs. I'd go visit people, measure the roof, and give them a price. And I hired a few of my buddies. I bought an old flatbed truck that would barely run, but it did the job for us. And we started putting roofs on people's houses and buildings. And I did that for probably two years. My dad called me one day, I remember well. He said, Philip, I work for this company called Schreiber Roofing in Dayton in Ohio and at the time they were a big, you know, multi-state hundred year old roofing business all doing union, big union projects. My dad says, Ken Schreiber wants to meet with you. So I thought this was pretty cool. Here's a guy doing what I'm doing on a much larger scale. What's he want to talk about? Well, turns out he wanted to start a non-union operation. And so he had been a union shop for a hundred years and wanted to start a non-union operation. And we cut a deal. He and I hit it off and he put up the money and we started what's called the Ogilby Corporation at the time. And we started doing much bigger roofing. You know, I had equipment, I had resources, I had people, I had payroll, money to make payroll and things started to go.
1: And how old were you when you did that?
0: I was 25 years old. I was 25 years old at this point of the story. And at my peak, I got up to like 55 or 60 employees. You know, it was not easy being a non-union division of Schreiber Roofing. I remember we bought a building to put our shop in and we had it renovated and we had a grand opening slated for Monday. And on Sunday afternoon, the police caught somebody trying to set the building on fire. Uh, Yeah, you can judge for yourself whether that was union related or not. Uh, Later on, the entire front window to the shop was blasted out with a shotgun overnight. And I suspect that was probably not the union folks as well. So. I'm not, not saying anything against unions at all. It's just it was a different time in the early 80s, a lot of stress, and people didn't. I'll
1: say something against unions. Yeah, <laughs> they aren't any good. That's so you don't have to worry about it. Okay. So I actually talked to a guy episode 206. If y'all want to check it out afterwards, write that down 206 with Ethan Wendell, where we talked about the same thing with, like, he was a smaller company too. What unions will do to make you, you know, join or not join is just like, you're even saying it right here. Like, okay, I don't know, quote unquote, if it was. And that's what I was going to ask is like, how are you able to get around it? But it sounds like they were still haunting you, even if you weren't even not unionized, you know?
0: Yeah, for sure. Yeah, for sure. Well, that's the very real part of the story. But, you know, we persevered and I have no idea if anybody was ever prosecuted. I doubt it. I don't remember going to court, but, you know, that's the way the world works today. But I kept my head down and we kept going. You know, along the way, I remember bringing home my first personal computer and I started using a Lotus spreadsheet. Somebody told me about Lotus. That was before Excel. And I built a spreadsheet and, you know, I created formulas and I created an estimating spreadsheet for my business. And it really helped a ton, right? It helped me not to forget things. It helped me to properly calculate quantities and really was, you know, it had an impact on my business. And so, I remember coming home from work one day, and my oldest son, Justin, was 12 years old at the time, and he was one of those computer genius kind of kids. And, you know, Justin had developed a game on the computer. I had bought him previously a little disc and a book called uh, Quick Basic for Kids, and Justin took that and created a game. And when I saw that, I said to my then 12-year-old, man, this is amazing. You must be a genius, of course. How about if we buy you some more books and we buy you some more software? you know, maybe we can create software that can be used for our family roofing business. And so like everything else, that idea took way longer than I thought. It cost more money than I thought. But sure enough, we created a program that I could use and for my business. And And it also allowed us to measure blueprints on your computer screen, which in those days was unheard of.
1: Like how much time did it actually take, and how much i guess cost wise like what were you thinking, and what was the actual time and cost structure? for You him?
0: know, we really didn't have an idea, honestly, you know, I wasn't in a position at that point to estimate you know software development time, and neither was my twelve year old but by the time Justin was seventeen, so here fast forward five years, I'll skip over some of the story fast forward five years, and we had sold a half a million dollars worth of our buildware pro estimating software, so.
1: Wait, I know you said you wanted to fast forward, but do you mind if we don't fast forward?
0: Sure, yeah, 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 that's fine.
1: Okay, yeah, because we got plenty of time.
0: We'll go back, we'll go back. You know, it did take a couple of years. I'll bet it was three years before we had something we could use for the business. And, you know, then we're working our way out of the bugs and stuff. I had a buddy of mine that was running another roofing business in Dayton that I won't mention their name. But my buddy was in my office and I showed him what we were doing. And the software at the time worked with a digitizer, which was like a large table or a big rubber mat that would plug into your computer. And it also had a stylus pen that would come with it. And you could take your paper blueprint and you could lay it on this digitizer and you could tell the computer, I've got an eighth inch scale or a quarter inch scale or a 20 scale, whatever the scale is. And you take the stylus and just touch it down on the various points on the drawing. And it would, our software that Justin had wrote would measure that color coded on your screen and create a kind of recreate the blueprint on your computer screen and calculate quantities. And so that's primarily the way we sold it. And when my buddy saw it for the first time, he said, dude, I got to have this for my business. How much? And I said, I have no idea. How about five grand? And he said, I'll have a check to you on Monday. And, <laughs> and then we had to figure out how to install it on his computer, which you know began the process of tech support and so on. But that's literally was our first sale and then this was in the very early days of the internet so i put up a web page and we started to get some leads and then i would buy lists of contractors and i'd send them little postcards in the mail and in those days when they would call i would talk to them on the phone because this is a $5000 piece of software right in the mid 80s late 80s i guess now we're talking early 90s to be honest i get lost in my time schedule here but we're probably talking early 90s now but still 5000 bucks was quite a bit of money and we didn't have an internet we didn't have any zoom we didn't have any of this stuff right we didn't have videos that were easily created so I would talk to somebody and qualify them as best I could and make them tell me that they might, they thought, in fact, they wanted to be a customer. And then I would get on a Southwest Airlines cheap flight and go see them. And that's what I did. And I hopefully would find three or four folks in the same region of the country. I remember traveling all over the country many, many times. Also remember, you know, going through a whole process and setting up the system in somebody's office and then telling me no, and I had to walk out. So when that happens a few times and you spend money for travel, you get a lot better at qualifying your leads. And that became part of my criteria, and I got better and better. And obviously, uh, eventually got to where I I would make the sale and then uh, travel. But that was just what I had to do. I mean, that was the world I lived in and trying to build a business and feed my family. And you just do what you need to do. And the lessons that you learn along the way are really what's the most valuable. And you tend to keep fixing the stuff that creates friction in your process. And pretty soon, you've got a real business.
1: With Leica, businesses can pass security questionnaires from customers, adapt to newer regulations, and maintain all documents in one place. The platform's automation, workflows, and integrations make passing audits and minimizing risk easier than ever. And you don't have to worry about keeping up with new regulations. Every customer gets a dedicated compliance expert to help understand requirements, implement policies, and fill ongoing responsibilities. Leica is also the only compliance platform that offers everything in-house. From tooling and expertise to the audits and monitoring, Leica is a turnkey experience. Historically, compliance has been done inch by inch using different tools for every certification and audit. But Leica was built to help high-growth businesses alleviate stress and take charge of compliance comprehensively. You know what? For people like me, compliance is complex. It's hard to unpack requirements when you don't know what they mean and how to apply them in a way that makes sense for your budget and growth stage. So to make compliance a little bit easier on you, today, listeners get 20% off when they join Leica. Just visit heyleica.com forward slash millionaire to get your exclusive deal. That's H-E-Y-L-A-I-K-A dot com slash millionaire to request a demo and get 20% off when you sign up with Leica. If you're a product manager, innovator, or a startup business person like me, you know how hard it is to be sure your next big idea will be a hit. In fact, 85% of new products fail. And a huge reason for all that failure is that it's just too hard to validate product market fit with consumers old style market research is too slow, too complicated, and too expensive for fast moving teams trying to build something great. But what if you could test out your product ideas with target consumers whenever you want, before you put all the time and money into development? That's what startups and fortune 500 companies do with feedback loop. Get quality feedback from their target customers early and often. Feedback Loop is the test before you invent product research platform. It's got expert templates for concept testing, user discovery, prioritizing features on your roadmap, and a lot more. You can create your own test in minutes and get back quality insights from your target consumers in hours. And if you go to go.feedbackloop.com forward slash millionaire, you'll get three full tests for free. So if you want your next product or feature to be a hit, test before you invest. Build based on data, not opinion. And launch with confidence with Feedback Loop. want to learn the details from those lessons, but I guess since I like the details and just to make things easy, while I was looking at your website, it looked like you said, looks like your son have listed as 14 years old in 1995, and that's when he created the BuildWare Pro. Is that still the same software?
0: Yep, that sounds right.
1: Okay. And so you were 36 or so.
0: Yeah, that's about right.
1: Okay. And before that, you said you had the roofing company, right?
0: I did. I did. I did. But the story is not, it's far from being over. So when the internet came along, I think I mentioned to you, right? We sold digitizers with the software, right? And folks were still working with paper. But I remember at the time, we also had the technology where you could load up, at that time, it was a TIFF image. Before PDF really took off, these were TIFF images. So if you had a TIFF image of a blueprint, you could load it onto your computer screen and you could measure with your mouse, much like the digitizer, but you'd have the real blueprint there. And so that capability existed in the software, but few people took advantage of it. I was always struck when I went to trade shows that people really liked how that worked. In fact, many people would say to me, So, Phil, what I need to do is I need to take my physical paper blueprint down to my blueprint shop, have them scan them in, convert them to TIFF images and give me back a disk in those days, a disk. And then I can load those disks into the software and then measure as though I had the paper in front of me. And I said, yes, you can do that. And by the way, you should buy a larger monitor when you do that. (laughs) And maybe even two. But people love doing that. The problem in the the industry was there was just no sources for digital blueprints, they would literally have to follow the process I just described. Along the way, digital blueprints started to slowly become more accepted. And so there was a company called Dodge, FW Dodge at the time, that was owned by McGraw-Hill. And they were in the construction news business. And what they would do is they started an operation where instead of just buying project leads from them, you could buy a CD-ROM sent to your place of business every day that had blueprints on it in the form of TIFFs. And when that happened, I thought, man, that is cool. And there's got to be something there. So I'll never forget. I didn't intend to include this in the story, but it's suddenly become relevant. I thought, I'm going to call these folks at Dodge and see if I can't make a partnership with them. They've got to certainly be interested in my software that can take these TIFF images that they're now selling right, to contractors all over the country. They can take these TIFF images and turn them into a blueprint that they can measure and create an estimate and determine quantities and all that stuff right on their own computer screen without ever turning them into paper. And I thought, surely if I get a hold of Dodge, this will be a national deal and I'll get rich and this will become very successful overnight. And, you know, I was super excited, I remember, right? And so I started calling into Dodge and I got fed at the time they were owned by McGraw Hill. Their corporate office was in New Jersey. And, and I, I remember I finally found my way to the vice president of marketing, right, was I think the highest reference I got. I got his phone number. And so I kept calling him. I would call, you know, twice a day. Of course, you get the gatekeeper, the secretary that won't let you talk to him. But I would always leave a message. You know, this is very exciting. It take 10 minutes of your time. You really want to hear my idea. This can change the world for both of us, blah, 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 blah. It was always crickets. I never got anything back. And one day, I remember, well, it was a Friday, and it was about noon, and I thought, man, if I could only get a hold of those Dodge people... I need to talk to those Dodge guys. So I called again, and this time he answered his own phone. Who I can't even remember his name. I wish it was. I wrote it down, but it, that paper's long gone. But this vice president of marketing for Dodge at the time, he answered his own phone, and I just thought, you know, it's lunchtime. Maybe I can miss the gatekeeper, and I did. And he answered his own phone, and I said, hey, this is Phil Ogilvy. Here's my story, blah, blah, blah. Here's what we've developed. I see you guys have this in the market. Be great to work together, partnership, something, you know? And there's this long pause on the other end of the phone, and this is a $150 million company, right? and this guy starts reaming me over the phone. He talks to me like I am the dirt on the bottom of his shoe, like how dare I waste his time? Did I not understand this guy is a senior executive at the largest construction news organization in the world and how dare I take the initiative to burn up his phone lines and waste his time?
1: Yeah, what do you think about that?
0: Well, I was horrified. I'd never had anybody speak to me that way, candidly, And I wrote down what he said to me and I wrote down his name and I stuck it on my wall. What was his name? I wish I could remember. I can't. I'm sorry. It's, you know, it's one of those things. Eventually, I got to tell you the rest of the story for you to fully appreciate this story, but I don't know his name and he's long since been gone. I have talked to folks at Dodge since. And in fact, Dodge tried to buy me about five years ago and I told them no to. But the fact of the matter is I'd never been spoken to and it really inspired me. I wrote it down. I put it on the wall behind me and that just made me furious, right? So let me continue to tell this story because Dodge gets their due and I'll tell you how it all happened. So, you know, shortly after this, it occurred to me, all right, well, Dodge isn't going to be a plan, but what if I created a web-based application that would allow a contractor, a general contractor to issue invites to bid and communicate with his or her subcontractors via this new thing called the internet? And in fact, probably what I could do is I could allow them to upload PDF files or TIF files for their blueprints and we'll create a much bigger market for BuildWare. Right. That was my idea. I'm going to create this web app that would allow general contractors to issue invites to all their subs because I knew a general contractor, a single general contractor in the commercial world can invite a thousand different subcontractors to bid on a single project of any size. It's quite a networking process. And I knew that, you know, based upon my experience in the in sort of the, you know, the hard world. But I thought this was a great opportunity. And so I did what everybody did in those days, which is I created a business plan. And now if you're on the following along on the timeline, by now we're into the dot-com boom. This is the late 90s. Internet companies are being born everywhere. This thing called Amazon is just getting its start, right? People are buying books via this website and they're losing a lot of money, but people you know, think this is going to be the future and companies are selling for hundreds of millions of dollars when they have very little revenue. And I thought, man, this new idea I've got, this could be one of those dot-com successes, right? And so uh, I wrote the business plan. I started to, I hired people to introduce me to potential investors. You know, I said, look, I'm trying to raise 5 million bucks. If you help me, you know, connect me to the right investor, I'll give you, you know, $100,000. I don't know what, my, what the deal was, but I had two or three people working for me. I had appointments in Silicon Valley multiple times. I met with investors out there, VC firms. I met with firms in Chicago, New York, Boston. I went to Florida a few times. I met with some guys here in Cincinnati. It was quite a ride. Everybody was interested. Most people loved it. Everybody said to me, "I can't believe somebody's already not doing this." And you know, and my answer was always the same. "Hey, look, this is your opportunity to be a part of this. Let's take this ride together. You know, I need to raise some money." Nobody wrote a check. In hindsight, I I realized too, a big part of the problem was I didn't fit the mold, right? I was not a 25-year-old kid. I didn't have a Stanford degree or a or USC degree. My dad didn't own a big construction company in San Francisco. I was a roofer with a high school degree in Cincinnati, and I didn't fit the mold. So none of these investors are stepping up to write the check. I finally found a local guy here in Cincinnati, a guy named Andrew Green, who was a local real estate investor. And I'll never forget, I pitched him expecting to hear the no. He said, call me in a week. I called him back in a week expecting to hear the no, and he says, look, I still don't know what you're doing, but I like you. I think personally you're going to succeed, and I'll give you a half million bucks. He said, I'd just like to get my money back. And that's, <laughs> that was how we started iSquarefoot.com, iSqft.com. It's now part of a, an outfit called Construct Connect, and I'll tell you a little bit of that story too. But that's how we started iSquarefoot. And by the way, to wrap a bow around the Dodge story... I Square Foot ultimately became such a success story that we devastated the folks at Dodge. They ended up selling to a group called Symphony. They were a third of their previous size when they sold. At their heyday, I think Dodge was a $360 million business. When Symphony bought them, they were doing $140 million and declining, and most of that business went to I Square Foot and then Construct Connect. So there is a little bit of a silver lining around my Dodge story, but ultimately it took a long time to see that become real. Along the way, in the early days of iSquareFoot, I'm building my management team, my leadership team, and I met a guy named Dave Conway. And Dave Conway was a very sharp, polished individual, spoke very well. Dave had a marketing degree from the University of Dayton. He was coming off a previous business that failed, but he had raised twenty million dollars for that failed business. And uh, you know, again, we're in the dot-com boom now, and I was perfectly convinced that I was going to make a fortune with this thing that we were building. And I hired Dave first as a consultant to help me raise money. And ultimately, Dave was just so good in front of the investors. I thought, I just got to hire this guy. So I hired Dave to join I Square Foot. I eventually gave him a million of my own shares in order to take the job and very big salary. And I made him CEO. You know, I thought these investors love the way Dave talks and we need to put a bunch more money in this business. So I hired Dave as my CEO. That was the start of a second journey here with iSquare Foot. So when Dave took the job as the CEO, my job began to be really the, the chief evangelist, sort of the chief architect for this thing we were building. And then I traveled around the country, met with all the big general contractors. We had companies like Syntex, which is now Balfour Beatty. We had Grassfield and Gorey in Birmingham, Alabama. We had Messer Construction here. We had Swinerton on the West Coast and Douglas Barnhart's. So we had big general contractors that were my customers all over the country. We we're really changing the world with this thing. The product that I created that allowed these guys to distribute drawings to their subs, in many cases, these bigger general contractors were at the time spending upwards of 2 or $3 million printing blueprints at their own expense and mailing them to uh, their subcontractors. And so when I introduced to them the construction office at Foot, it really changed their world and they paid a lot for it. I mean, we had customers paying us a quarter million dollars in ARR in the very early days for that solution because it was such a better, more transformative experience than what they had done on paper. Eventually, Dave and I were combined now trying to raise money. Payroll continued to grow. Dave, in addition to being great at raising money, he was great at spending money. We continued to pile on the employees. Multiple times during those days, I found myself at Andrew Green's door picking up a $100,000 check on an envelope that was hanging on the door so we could make payroll on Friday. I mean, that literally happened multiple times uh, during this stretch. I remember we met with a local potential investor here in Cincinnati, River Cities Capital. And I remember very well, we met with River Cities. They said, get to a thousand customers and we're going to invest. We'll do a $5 million deal. We'll invest in your business. So, you know, Dave and I left that meeting and we thought, okay, our goal is clear. Let's go get a thousand customers. And we focused on doing that and took us about six more months of begging for payroll from Andrew. And we finally got to a thousand customers and we go back to the River Cities guys. They met with us in Cincinnati here in our office. And I remember this long, stressful meeting. At the end, it basically is get another 1,000 customers and we're going to invest, I promise. And I was devastated. We thought we had a path here. I mean, every two weeks, we're nearly bankrupt. We can't make payroll. It's all over. We got a very tired investor by now in Andrew. And I said, fuck you guys. Fuck you guys. Leave here and never come back. That's what I told him. Dave was horrified, of course, but that's what I told him because it was still my company, and I didn't like dealing with people like this, right? You do what you say you're going to do, or get out of my way, because I'm not interested in dealing with you. So I said, fuck you guys. What'd you say? I said, fuck you guys. (laughs) That's what I said. So let me tell you what happened next. So this was on a Thursday or Friday late in the day. Somehow we squeaked out some... No, no, no. We did not squeak out payroll. After the guys from River City's capital left our office, we laid off 40 people because we had to, right? We got to get to another 1,000 customers. It's going to take another three or four months. This was the only investor we really had on a short string. So the guys at River Cities Capital, unbeknownst to me, are talking to Dave Conway behind my back over the weekend. And on Monday morning, I'm presented with a deal where River Cities is now prepared to invest $5 million in our I-square-foot business. By the way, there's a couple of caveats. One, we're going to put in a 3x liquidation preference on that money. So Basically, what that means is we're going to put in five, and we're going to charge you interest, or you're going to pay basically dividends, right, for every day you have that money. Uh, you're going to pay us a very strong interest rate. But there's also a three X liquidation preference, which means River City's capital is going to get their five million dollars back at exit, whenever we exit, they're going to get their five million out, and then they'll get another five, and then they'll get another five. So they'll get 15 million out, plus all the dividends that they've earned, and then, and only then. Whatever's left in the pot gets split up among all the other investors. And oh, by the way, River Cities gets their majority share of that as well. So basically, it was a deal that was set up to massively punish myself and every other common shareholder. It was a desperation deal because we had no other options. And you just heard how we weren't going to stay in business without the money. The second caveat that came in addition to that 3x liquidation preference was Phil loses his spot on the board. So we don't have to deal with Phil in any more board meetings. Uh, that's the other caveat to this deal. And Dave takes the spot on the board. I said, okay, you fuckers, I guess we'll do it. And then that's the deal we signed up for. Dave was very good at raising money, as I mentioned to you. I don't know if I said that before, but Dave ended up over the next several years. We didn't sell the business immediately, obviously. Over the next several years, Dave raised like $36 million in addition to that. I was crazy how much money was paid in. And ultimately, after I lost control of the business, I really got tired of not running the show anymore. I figured, I have placed a bet. Let's see what happens. Ultimately, I left there in 2008. I pulled Justin, my son, who was also at the business. My wife and I left there in 2008. I pulled Justin out a couple of years later, 2010. And we just thought, you know what? Let's rebuild BuildWare. Let's put it into the cloud. This is something we'd always dreamed about doing. We wanted to do it with I-square-foot, but that never worked out. So We thought, let's rebuild this software from the ground up and we'll build it for the cloud and we'll really change the industry all over again. So I ended up leaving iSquareFoot, ultimately sold my shares when they sold in 2014. I got very few, literally pennies on the dollar. It's an unfortunate story. I'm one of those founder entrepreneurs that builds a $100 million business and doesn't make any money. That's my story. You just heard how it can happen. It can happen to you, Mr. Entrepreneur, so pay attention but that was my story. But we started Stack. Look, I took again, I you know, I'm not one to quit. I took the learning and the knowledge and the experience and we started Stack. And we really kicked off Stack in 2015, we had recreated our product completely in the cloud. We had about 600 customers at the time. I went out and raised a few more bucks because we were still rating on I square foot to sell at this time and I went out and raised a few more dollars. Did you
1: get a dollars from River City's Capital?
0: Uh, no. No. In fact, they actually pinged me a few times wanting to talk about investing, if you can imagine that. I thought that took a lot of nerve. But no, no, I didn't. We ended up mostly friends and family. There's a group here in town called Cincy Tech, which is a public-private partnership. If you have any of those in your town and you're in the technology business, I'd urge you to seek them out. But they helped me raise a million dollars like within a few days. It was really easy. And then later on, in 2017, we took what amounts to about $7 million from a group called Level Equity out of New York City. And those guys have been great to work with. I only have a 1x liquidation preference there, by the way. So the days of 3x liquidation preferences, I hope are gone and dead forever. But we have a great deal and a great partner with Level and and they've been very good. But look, we're killing it. We're serving thousands of customers. We have 5,000 logos, probably 10,000 paying users. We have a 100,000 plus users using it for free every month. We're over 100 employees. We just acquired a company called Smart Use to develop more of a broad mobile platform out of our solution. And as I said, we're over 100 and probably 115 or 20 employees today, and we're targeting 200 for a year out. We think we'll have a $40 million recurring revenue business here in in about three years. And we're in a very valuable space. We're changing people's lives for the better. And you know it's been a great ride, but it's been a long journey for me, as you can tell. And that's been the path to get where we are today. So the final chapter is still not written yet, but the future looks really bright. I got my sunglasses on and I think we're going to be in good shape.
1: Energetic Austin here with a fresh new ad read for Anthem Software. You know what? Small business owners know the digital marketing world is constantly evolving. Every change means spending time finding and keeping track of vendors for different projects. That's why you need Anthem Software to be your dedicated partner. Trust me, you need to check them out. Anthem Software provides a whole suite of services, business management software, digital marketing, and consulting all designed to help your small business grow and thrive against the competition. Anthem Software is the one-stop shop that can take care of lead management, conversion reports, website design, social media marketing, and so much more. This lets you focus on running your business so you can make more money and actually have time to enjoy it. Best of all, Anthem Software will provide unique solutions tailored to your business's specific needs for any size budget and with no long-term contracts. Anthem Software is committed to helping you find, serve, and keep more customers profitably. See for yourself today. Visit AnthemSoftware.com. To learn more, that's A-N-T-H-E-M-S-O-F-T-W-A-R-E.com. That's A-N-T-H-E-M-Software.com. So for all intents and purposes, like Stack really just started six years ago?
0: Yeah, that's about right. We launched Stack in January,
1: 2015. Okay. And when you said you got some family and friends money and that local money? I guess, like how many people did you end up starting off with? Because we've heard how much you've grown, it sounds like, up to today, 100 plus employees and whatnot.
0: When we first took that investment, there was just the three of us, my wife, Jane Basor, my son, Justin Ogilby, and myself. And we worked out of our house. And we, like I said, we got it to about 600 customers. When I raised the million, we hired a few developers because we really needed to put more work into the app. And I hired a couple of salespeople. So we went from three to five employees, and that was in 2000, really 2015 early. So it's been pretty rapid growth.
1: Again, that's over the last six years that I'm looking at. What was the difference between this product and the Foot product that you were working on?
0: So with Foot, I didn't go into a lot of detail there. It ultimately morphed into a bit of a construction news business. So we had a solution we sold to general contractors. They still have that they ultimately, and I should put a bow around this story too, because Dave did a great job of acquiring a bunch of our competitors. So there were multiple operators selling construction news regionally in the United States. And by construction news, it means you've got a plumbing or a drywall or a painting business or structural steel, whatever, and you need to find more work in the commercial space. You would oftentimes buy access to construction news. So you buy access to a subscription that gives you daily leads, new projects out to forbid, things like that, who you're going to bid to, all that kind of stuff. It's a very typical thing to do if you're in a construction business. Dave acquired a bunch of those. The next investor, the people that bought i Foot from River Cities and us, was Genstar Capital, and they had another partner. I forget who it was then, but Genstar bought it and then gave Dave the money to acquire a bunch of our competitors. So other companies that sold construction information and construction news were added to iSquarefoot, and it became Construct Connect. They rebranded it and and ended up, by the way, sold Construct Connect to uh, Roper Technologies in 2015 for uh, $650 million. So Dave had a great run. He's not there anymore at iSquarefoot, He rolled up a bunch of those older businesses and was very successful in selling it to a private equity firm.
1: Well, yeah, we can tell your enthusiasm. Have you had this type of enthusiasm your whole life?
0: Uh, Probably. You know, it's, it's probably the energy that drives me forward. I mean, I was just determined to succeed. I was talking to a young guy the other day who was telling me about how he's got a side hustle and a day job and two day jobs. And I explained to him, look, you know, I'm not telling you to quit your job, but when you feel like you've got a formula and you've got it figured out, one of the most important things you can do to ultimately ensure your success is to burn the bridges. You really can't continue to rely on the old revenue forever because if you've got an out, most people will take it when things get really difficult. I mean, you heard my story The more difficult things became, the more I worked hard to find a solution. And so, you know, this is the land of opportunity. We are so blessed to live on the greatest country in the planet where stories like mine are possible. But as the entrepreneur, just understand in advance, it's not going to be an easy path. When things get tough, you find a way to fix the friction areas in your business. And if you stay with it long enough, you'll succeed. But if you've got that, secondary backdoor available option all the time, you probably won't ever really find success because you really don't have to.
1: I I noticed your energy because I had one listener tell me I was pretty low energy, Phil, so... (laughs)
0: Is that right? (laughs) Energetic
1: Austin really enjoys your energy. So That's great.
0: That's great. I have
1: to plug those into my ad spots, the Energetic Austin. But do you mind if I go back? Because you're going so quick. I wanted to let you tell the story. But if I jump back to certain details and I think it would be kind of interesting. Basically, even with your original software that your son developed, I guess in 1995, you were about 36. You were saying it sounded like eight, nine years you had been working on your own roofing company. You said he got up to 80 employees or so. Can you tell us like the transition of going from a roofing company to the software company?
0: Yeah. So, man, roofing is tough. And again, I gave you the stats from construction trades in general. What happens? Why construction has such a high failure rate? And listen, I I was probably tracking to be another failure in hindsight. I'd love to tell you I lived in a big house on the hill and I had a big boat on the river and life was wonderful for me in the roofing business. It wasn't was always a struggle i never had enough cash the reason it's there's such a high failure rate in construction is it tends to be guys like me right who have no formal business training have no idea how to run a business they know how to perform some sort of action or trade but they really don't know how to sell it they don't know how to market it they don't know how to manage people they don't know how to pay the government there's so many headwinds to to the industry based on that because they tend to be people who aren't trained to be in business. They're trained to perform some sort of action. And if you're good at that, you think you can build a business. It's really two different things. And there's a much broader skill set required to succeed. And the fact that it's easy to get into these construction trade businesses and there's always work around new people need help. In general, when the market slows down a little bit, the margins tighten dramatically, right? When people are desperate for work, they really cut their margins. You've got to be a super efficient operator to be successful in a world where the margins are very thin.
1: And so it was an easy decision once you saw that, hey, looks like I have the potential to make money with this software and selling that. You're like, you're barely making ends meet anyways as a you know roofer and a roofing construction company that it was an easy decision.
0: Austin, it was the easiest decision I've ever made my whole life, (laughs) for sure. No question about it.
1: And you were saying you're trying to sell this software. You were just trying to go to certain cities. And how would they find out about you? Because I know you said there's something called the Yellow Pages that we heard about. And I understand that was for your roofing. But how were they able to find out about your software in these other cities and you trying to land those deals?
0: Uh, yeah, so that was in the very early days of the internet. I stood up a web page, and people would call in. The other thing that I did, my buddy David Kushner that I went to high school with and played soccer with as a kid, he had a technology business, mostly sort of like a an overblown radio shack in Fairborn, Ohio, but he did a lot of video production. And so I went into David's studios and he helped me record a demo video uh, that I put on a, on one of those big, you know, Betamax or VHS cassettes. And so one of the things I started to do is if you come to my website and you're interested in the software, request a free video and I would mail you the video and then you could watch the video and you get a demo. So that really, that was sort of like the early days of any sort of screen sharing, you know, but that was my workaround and that made it a lot easier to vet who I was going to fly to see and all that kind of stuff.
1: Yeah, so that does seem like it made sense. And then, so from there, from 95 up to you're basically saying the dot com boom. I think like what 2001 is when you started doing I Square Foot, but did it just kind of develop from that original software into I Square Foot, if you will? The one, the software that your kind of son had started to create?
0: Yeah, so that was based on. Yeah, I mean, we had the software, but then I put Justin together with a guy named Raymond Andy. I went to the University of Cincinnati, which is close to us. I put a postcard on a bulletin board, and I said, I'm looking for anybody that knows how to develop software for this internet thing. And I got a guy named Raymond Andy, who was an exchange student from Nigeria. And I would literally pick Raymond Andy up. My son, of course, was a young teenager at the time. Justin and I would pick Raymond up down on the University of Cincinnati campus. I'd bring him back to Westchester in the suburbs. And we put cots in our office and we buy pizza and egg McMuffins all weekend. And these two nerdy kids were in heaven writing code. And that's how I got the prototype stood up for what would become I-Square Foot. But that's how we started that. And
1: did you have to send checks to their Nigerian family for the (laughs) prints?
0: Back in those days, back in those days, I had enough cash flow from selling buildware that funded the development of the I-Square Foot stuff in the very early days.
1: And I guess when you were doing that, you said even your construction business. Well, you said you had 80 employees, so you had to have your own office. But I guess after you went back to the software, you started working from home with your son?
0: That's correct. Yeah. Yeah, that's right.
1: Okay. And I know you said your wife at some point in time, it sounded like you had gotten divorced. When did that happen?
0: Oh, yeah. It's, man, entrepreneurship is a ragged journey. That happened in 2000. So that was in the very early days of I Square Foot, and it's unfortunate. And, you know, she's still doing great today. And so, you know, it's all good. Happy ending. But yeah, unfortunately, went through a divorce and married my wife, Jane, in 2002. And she's been a partner in the venture ever since.
1: Was it because of like you focusing too much on work or other factors?
0: Yeah, yeah, I I think so. Yeah, in hindsight, I was constantly gone. She was constantly focused on the kids. It's a tough environment. I mean, you got to pay attention to your home life and your family or things are not going to go well. I appreciate you asking about that. The other thing that I want to share with you, though, is... My wife, Jane, has really had a big impact on helping me to succeed. And I'll tell you this story because there's probably a lot of you folks listening to this. If you're entrepreneurs, you know, you're know you pushing forward, you're a driving forward type of person, you want to succeed, you have a good idea, you're not afraid. Those are all very critical skills for creating a startup that's successful. But if you can put next to yourself someone who has a very high attention to detail, <laughs> you will find success sooner. And realizing that you need someone to cover the gaps in your skill set is a very, very crucial requirement for succeeding. And I found that with Jane and she's had a big impact on helping Justin and I to get where we are. Just cleaning up the details and having the answers when the investors ask is critical stuff. So you know, I think that's a very critical piece of advice. If you're a budding entrepreneur out there, take my advice. That's probably the most important thing you can do is honestly, assess yourself, find where you're weak. My weakness was details and cleaning up behind myself, so to speak. And I needed somebody to do that. And when I found somebody that did it, it really changed my trajectory almost immediately.
1: But when you're just going through the divorce, because unfortunately, a lot of entrepreneurs end up dealing with this, right? Is like, what was like your lowest point? I don't know if the divorce was or if there's something else, you know, personally, because we've heard the struggles you had to do business wise. But again, personally, could you give us any insight on that that might help other people?
0: Oh man, divorce sucks, and it's it was a nightmare going through it. I, you know, it was a very very dark period of my life, and my nature is to be honest, my nature is not to look back. The story I told you about Conway and the business, I really don't, you know, dive into the details because it's sort of dark, you know, in my memory, and I don't I don't like to go there. So yeah, it was rough, but I've had a fundamental belief, and I share this with my kids all the time, and now my grandkids. I have believed my entire life that tomorrow can and will be better than today. I believe that. I believe it today. I believed it yesterday. I believed it when I was 25 and when I was 40. I believe tomorrow can and will be better than today. And the other thing that's really important to my beliefs, to be honest, is that I believe I have the responsibility and the ability to do it myself. That's not to minimize the contributions of all those around me. I've explained to you how important that is. But if you believe that you're waiting on someone else to give you some sort of resource or Somebody else has got to say yes to something for you to succeed, you will not find success in the long term.
1: Well, yeah, I appreciate you saying that divorce was a struggle, but is it, I'm just trying to understand because it sounds like for me, if I'm just listening, it sounds like Phil's super enthusiastic, which we like, you know, he's super positive, which we like, like you need those things. But it seems like your life wasn't that hard or you didn't have to go through anything personally that was that hard. That's the reason I was asking. They're like, Phil's story seems pretty, pretty simple and pretty easy.
0: Much of my early life was a financial nightmare, much of it, very much of it. you know it's funny it's funny to be where I am today. I have my own airplane. I fly back and forth to our place in florida i'm going to buy a bigger airplane pretty soon i We're going to buy a bigger condo on the ocean. We're on the ocean now. Life today is amazing, but life I mean I went through thirty years of really, really difficult financial times. I had a tax lien on me for seventy five thousand dollars when Andrew Green finally said yes I mean you know there's there's just it's a journey. <laughs> And it's a challenge and it's difficult. And I, I, I love, you know, people look at me today and they think they know me, but they have no idea the darkness that I've plotted through to get to where I am today.
1: What's the darkness that you've plotted
0: through? I've said enough about it. Let's go forward. That's my nature is going forward. I, You know, it it was dark. I mean, I filed personal bankruptcy. I filed personal bankruptcy when I was 26 years old, something like that. I mean, I, I it's it's uh you know and I, I I I it brings tears to my eyes. I I signed a a credit line. We have a credit line of our business that's now up to thirteen or fourteen million dollars. I remember signing that document for that credit line and cry. I mean a tear came to my eye because of what I've been through and what I put my family and you know my kids through in the early days was far from desirable. You know it's it's just not an easy journey. It's, you're going to come out with scars. And I I got quite a few of them, but the good news is I'm out on the other side of it. And uh, it's a journey and it's not easy, but it's worth it when you get to the final result.
1: Well, if you cry, we get more downloads. So you can if you want right
0: now. (laughs) No, I'm good. I'm good. I got that out of my system. Thank you.
1: Do you understand why I'm asking that? Cuz it sounds like again to the perspective. I'm glad you brought up personal bankruptcy. People wouldn't know and that's what makes your story even more impactful. It's like, okay, he's this enthusiastic and excited about business and sounds like he's doing awesome right now, but if we don't ever hear that you went through any of those personal struggles, I mean, that just helps so much more that like if anyone's going through divorce or gone through personal bankruptcy, they can put themselves in your shoes and say, "Hey, I can still be successful."
0: Yeah, I had a car repossessed. I mean, I, you know, I, it's so ugly. I don't like I don't like saying it out loud. I don't like thinking about it. I don't like saying it out loud. It's just not a good time in my life, and you know. Yeah, but
1: you do realize it helps people, right?
0: Oh, I know. I get it. I hope this is helpful. You know, I had a credit score in the low six hundreds. You know, now it's in the mid eight hundreds. You know, there is daylight. There is daylight, and I I appreciate why you're asking. And it's been a hell of a ride. It certainly had a lot of bruises along the way.
1: Yeah, and thank you for because I was looking at your time. I, I put it down as we go. That's what I was wondering up till this. You know. Your last company, Stack C T stackct.com stackct.com if anyone wants to check it out. But your Stack Company here. I mean, personally, like financially, you had you been successful at all? Like if you were looking back, I mean, were you still okay financially? But yeah. it seems like really these last six years is really where you've made a lot of your money.
0: Yeah, no, no, that's true. I mean, I, I was forty years old before I made a hundred grand. Both of my stepdaughters are well above that in their in their early thirties and I'm so proud of them and you know, Justin has obviously done well most all of his working life. He's still a partner in the business, by the way. But yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, it it came later for sure. Success has come later for me. You heard my story, you know, and that's what's frustrating too about the Hawaii Square Foot story. I mean, we literally changed the way the industry operates there and I didn't get paid. And so if I can help one of you avoid something like that, I would certainly like to do that. But the ironic thing for me is like, What you said is true. The financial success came later, but the actual success and the impact of my efforts came much earlier. I just really didn't get paid for it at the time. So
1: Right. And that's the whole important point. It's like some people, what happens if they're thinking right now they're listening and they're a couple of years into their business or whatever, saying they're not going to make it, right? I mean, at some point, if it's not making sense, you have to give up, but look how long it took you to achieve that financial success that it seems like some people want to have in just a few years of business.
0: Yeah. And there's no no question about it. No question about it. And you got to pay attention. You got to instrument all everything, every instrument, every aspect of your business. That's an important lesson too. I mean, and once you have your business instrumented by that, I mean, we use Salesforce, for example, but I can tell you right this minute, you know, what the likelihood of a painting contractor who makes $2 million painting contractor, what's the likelihood if he signs up today, he's going to churn out of stack. I can tell you what that is. And if he's located in California and he's a $10 million contractor, I can tell you what the likelihood he's going to churn. So the more handles you have on their business, the quicker you can find success. I mean, there's just so many things along the way that I've learned. But again, the importance of bringing in people next to you that have the skills that you don't is absolutely critical and I can't overstate it. It's one of the things we joked about the state of the country today. You just heard my long drawn out story. It makes my head want to explode when I see young people talking about how they're disadvantaged or held down or you know, the world is somehow, they're waiting on somebody else to let them succeed. And somehow this isn't the greatest country on the planet. And to all those people, I say, fuck you. There's the door. Go find a better country because there isn't one. And until you stop waiting on somebody else to give you permission, you're not going to succeed. So it's a thing that just sort of, I hate to be at this stage in my life and then looking at this country in the state that we're in because I know there's a lot of great people who have their head on straight. But for us to perpetuate this belief that somehow you're being disadvantaged or held back, Just makes me crazy.
1: Yeah. Or being offended by being called a gender. Do you like that? Oh
0: my gosh. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Well, I think it's funny. It's just like,
1: you know, I think that anyone who's listening now really, they're the people in, you know, your thought process, right? Because there's, I always say they're spending their free time trying to learn about business, trying to learn from, you know, smart people we've had on just like you. So, fortunately, I think all the people listening now kind of understand that and hopefully can learn from your story. So, thank you for sitting down and sharing everything.
0: Yeah, no problem. I, you know, I think I joked that I should write a book someday. I, maybe I will. It's been it's been a hell of a ride. But you know, you get the highlights of the story. But yeah, no, it's been it was bloody and painful. Many many steps along the way, and I it's good to be where I am. But it's not been without its pain and suffering. But you know I love it and I know, you know it gets in your blood and hopefully a lot of you can relate I mean once you've earned your own dollar with your own business or venture I mean it's it's addicting and it's empowering too it gives you confidence to go on to the next thing and the best advice I can give for you is again get somebody next to you who fills in for your weaknesses be honest with yourself cuz you're probably not that person that can do everything perfectly all the time so find somebody who's covers your weakness and then when you find friction that's standing between you and more revenue, fix the friction. And pretty soon you've got a real business.
1: Well, how were you able to find that friction in your last business and be able to fix it?
0: Yeah, you know, it's not a simple, trite answer to that. It's, it goes back to instrumenting your business, right? So you understand it. Do you really know? Do you really have the answers? What does it cost you to get a lead? What does it cost you to sell that lead? You really have to have all your, your arms wrapped completely around your business with an understanding of the metrics that matter, and then you can mark, start to make smart decisions. So It's not a simple answer to that. It's a complicated answer, and only you're going to know the answers, but start by instrumenting everything you can think of, and look for what the investors or the buyers of your business, what what are the key metrics they're going to look at when they put a value on your business? Look at those metrics, figure that out, and then start working on those metrics first, and pretty soon you'll find success.
1: Well, again, thanks for sharing your story. I guess one last thing, because you already gave us some wisdom there. I was just thinking, did you ever want to quit stopping and doing your own business and just going to get a nine to five? Like, it sounded like obviously all the way through, I guess you just coming out of high school that you kind of had your own business and were in the kind of the construction field. Was there ever a point where you're just like, hey, this isn't worth it. I just should just go get a salary job instead of trying to make my own business.
0: You know, when I was a teenager, I remember my buddy, Todd Busson and, and I were buddies. We went to high school together. I was probably 15. I wasn't driving yet. Todd's brother was can't remember Todd's brother's name. But anyway, he was like five or six years older than us. And he was an entrepreneur. And he opened a big nightclub in Springfield, Ohio. And Todd and I were hired to paint that nightclub. And I'll never forget, that was a transformative moment for me because I'm like 14 years old, maybe 15. And I'm seeing my buddy's brother, a few years older than us, who with an investor built this beautiful nightclub and just became immediately successful with this nightclub. And I just thought, Nobody in my family had ever gone to college before. And why is it that there's this this level of success people are enjoying that we're not enjoying? And so I just, I realized then and there that I could create a better life for myself and I was going to do it. And I never stopped. I never looked back. I just never did. The answer is no. For me, there was never, I'm going to go quit and take a job. I was just so determined from the beginning. I knew people were out there doing it and it didn't make sense to me why it couldn't be me. And that just propelled me forward.
1: That's amazing. You know, from just a simple painting job when yeah. you're that young, right?
0: <laughs> yep. Yep. And I, you know, and it's funny now and I still remember it so this day and I remember having that realization like, wow, that's really amazing. I mean, he came from a blue collar family, you know, and, but so anyway, that was a very early transformative moment. Why not me? Why not us? Why not our family? And then I just was determined to make it happen.
1: And why not you, whoever's listening now? Right. That's the whole reason I do these stories, because it is so hard to find the stories like yours, like Googling or even YouTubing or whatever. And that's why I did this podcast is like, okay, if Phil can do it, then I can do it. Right. And hopefully it motivates other people, you know, and to understand your story that, again, I just appreciate you diving into details and even talking about some of the stuff at the end, the negative stuff that, again, no one really wants to talk about. But it really, I think, helps some people. So I appreciate you doing that.
0: Yeah, no, I'm glad to help. I'm glad to help. Like I said, my nature is not to look back. So a lot of that stuff is in a closet in the back of my mind that never gets opened. So you opened it, but that's okay. It's all good. And I'm glad to help. You know, this is it's fun. I I hope somebody listens to this and is inspired by it and helps you on your journey to success. That's what I hope.
1: And hopefully someone will reach out to you right after this interview and say thank you for doing it. So if they do, because you know, I really hope that all the listeners do appreciate the time that you spend doing it and all the other guests. So I do appreciate when they actually even take the time to you know, tell you personally, thank you for doing it. So what would be the best way for them to reach out to you, Phil, and say, thank you for doing the interview?
0: Yeah, uh, please don't spam me, but you can email me <laughs> at Pogilby at stackct.com, P-O-G-I-L-B-Y at stackct.com. And thanks for not spamming me, but I'm happy to love to hear from you. All right. Thanks, Phil. You're welcome. Thanks for doing it. Flash forward to 2009 and I'm back in the golf business as a club pro and I get a message on my MySpace page from a 14-year-old kid in Mexico claiming that I was his father. You know, he says I impregnated his mom in the champagne room at a club in Cozumel on New Year's Eve in 1998 and I immediately called bullshit because I remember that night vividly and there were at least five other guys with me. Uh, that were also prime candidates. So I have to go down there as part of a paternity hearing, and the night before I have to testify.
1: So if you want to hear more interesting stories just like this preview, well, become a Patreon member today. You know you're missing out. Just check the link in your episode description below to join the club, or go to millionaire-interviews.com forward slash Patreon. Join the club. Join
0: the club. Join the club.